Greetings, church and friends of the church. It is um, the 23rd of March, 2021. We are more than a year into this uh, pandemic season, um, a wilderness season we've been considering in this series of reflections, you know, over this last year. We've tried to uh, more deeply understand ourselves in this wilderness place, um, knowing that we weren't monopolized by going through the motions of what used to be our normal and knowing that we hadn't arrived at a new normal yet, that we could think uh, critically and carefully about who we are, who we've been, and, and most importantly, who we wanna be so that we can emerge into a new normal that's better and more just, uh, more peaceful, full of more goodness. Um, so, We've been in the midst of a sort of a mini series within a series on the spiritual practice of simplifying, but you know, it's, it's one of those times, one of those weeks where we're just to call time out and we have to name what's going on in the world around us and, and, and take what we've learned about spiritual reflection in this series and apply it to something that we are living through right now which is a really awful hellish week in our nation for gun violence. Um, it's time for us to talk about guns. It's, it's beyond time. And, and, and not just ramp up the argument. It's, it's time to set down the argument and to actually think and talk for real uh, about what's going on, um, to not talk politically but just to talk honestly, what the hell is going on in our country? Um, to, so to get that conversation started, you know, I want to go to one of the most unsettling narratives in the Hebrew scriptures, unsettling the first time you read it before you understand it in context. And that's the story of the um, patriarch Abraham and the almost sacrifice of his son, Isaac. So as this story goes, after promising Abraham that he would be the father of this nation to be of Israel, and that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky, and that God would bless them as a people um, in order that they might have the ability to be God's means of bringing blessing and redemption to all the nations of the world after promising all that, God then makes this strange demand of Abraham that he sacrifice his son, Isaac, through whom this promise was to be fulfilled, or so he thought. No Isaac, no future generations. And the, one, of the, one of the most striking parts of the story is how Abraham responds to this supposed command from the divine. He responds obediently as though this were a normal request, as though he trusted that on the other side of this awful sacrifice of his own son, that God would then reward him with all that he promised. He, he's already moved beyond Isaac being a part of this story. Um. And this tells us something critical about the common mythology of the time, this normal, um, unchallenged response from Abraham. Okay, I'll do it. it. It tells us that in that culture and in the mythology of the ancient Near East, the, the sacrifice of an innocent, you know, most often children to the gods, was common. It was normal. The misunderstanding in these cultures 
was that their gods required the sacrifice of an innocent in exchange for the divine favor. There are biblical narratives like this one and others, and there are extra biblical narratives um, from the ancient Near East, from other cultures and traditions that detail this kind of mythology and practice. And, and we know that outside of the ancient Near East, even on this side of the globe, that child sacrifice was a part of the mythology and practice of many peoples uh, on this side of the world, uh, like the Mayan cultures. So Abraham responds obediently because this depth of sacrifice was cultured within him to be normal. It was normal to watch your child die. But then the narrative shifts and we're let in on the secret. And that is that the God of Abraham is not like the other gods. That this God is a God of life and does not demand this sacrifice. And this was an immeasurably important shift in human culture. This idea that God does not demand the sacrifice of our innocence and our children within some divinely orchestrated rhythm um, is a game changer. It began the separation of dangerous mythology from the real true God understanding. Um, this narrative began to point to the truth, not in how the narrative starts with this very normal request of the divine, but, it, but, in, the, but in the twist ending as it points to life instead of death. Um, in the canon of the Hebrew scriptures, one major distinction between the true God and the false gods of various native mythologies is that the one true God does not demand the sacrifice of our innocent ones, our children, but false gods and idols do. False gods and idols demand the lives of innocents and children. The true God requests of us that which makes for peace. False gods and idols demand of us that which makes for selfish, selfish interest and destruction and the loss of innocent life. The prophet Isaiah um, is quoted as pronouncing this during a time of exile when the Israelites would have been surrounded by an empire full of people worshiping false gods and idols and with too many innocent people being killed. He stood up and said this, all who make idols are nothing and the things that they delight in do not profit. And so they will end up in shame. Who would fashion a God or cast an image that can do no good? Look, all of its devotees shall end up in shame. They do not know, nor do they comprehend, for their eyes are shut, so they cannot see, and their minds as well, so that they cannot understand. Those who fashion false gods and idols can do no good. There's no good that can come from it. Whether the motivation for bowing before an idol comes from nefarious intentions or well-meaning intentions, that loyalty to an idol does no good. 
those who are the devotees, the masses who follow the architects of life-stealing false gods, those who just don't seem to know or understand or see the dangerous ignorance with which they plead their loyalty to these destructive and false gods, they will be humbled when the idol is revealed for what it really is. They will be revealed as having been on the wrong side of history. The Assyrian Empire that oppressed and exiled the Israelites, that empire didn't last. Their gods were proven false. The leaders were revealed as greedy aggressors. Their gods were revealed as nothing more than a projection of their own fear and greed, hate and brokenness. And those who willfully or ignorantly followed them ended up in a place of humiliation where truth and peace were restored. We have a problem with idol worship in America. It is claiming the lives of innocent people. It's claiming the lives of children. We're starting to assume that this is just normal, but it's not. We have a problem with worshiping the almighty dollar as an idol and the greed that props it up has caused a massive wealth gap concentrating an immoral amount of wealth in the accounts of some while millions of innocent people and children in America died from hunger, exposure, preventable diseases, and poverty in general. We have a problem worshiping the idols of whiteness and heterosexuality. It's causing the avoidable deaths of millions of Americans of color and LGBTQ Americans. And then there's the idol that we reflect on here the idol worship causing immoral gun deaths. I cannot claim to know exactly what or who the idol is. It's complicated, but we know that it's real by the rising number of innocent lives and children that gun deaths are claiming. Maybe the idol is violence. Maybe the idol is the gun itself. Maybe the idol is the assault weapon. Maybe the idol is money. Maybe the idol is masculinity. Maybe the idol is liberty at all costs. Maybe the idol is a false sense of personal safety. Maybe the idol is partisan political loyalty. But whatever the idol is, or a combination of idols this is, we have to know and remember that Idols don't deliver what they supposedly promise. They can't because they don't actually exist. The ancient Near East and Mayan gods that demanded the sacrifice of innocence, they, they didn't exist. The gods of the Assyrians and later the Romans who supposedly directed them to colonize, oppress, exile, murder their way to domination and empire, those gods didn't, didn't exist. They were a manifestation of the greed, desires, fears, and hate of the leaders and their followers. Idols and false gods are a phantom, a projection of our misplaced desires, hopes, and fears. Our fear and greed compel us to offer more and more and more to our idols in expectation that the idol will make good on the promise that we think that they've made, but they aren't there and they can do no good. 
We could give an idol everything, including the last and most valuable gift, innocent life. And yet that idol won't ever be able to deliver what we expect. And yet we as a nation continue to operate under this false assumption that the lives of these innocents and children are a necessary sacrifice to whatever God this is. So that this God will save us from the bad guys with guns or the overreaching government with guns or the immigrants or refugees with guns or the people of color who come from their cities into our suburbs with guns. And so this God will grant us the protection, safety, comfort and peace for which we are longing if we worship it. But this is false. Innocents and children will only continue to die in greater frequency and volume. This is shameful idol worship. What if the necessary sacrifice was your child and your grandchild? Why? Why do we keep worshiping at the altar of this idol? Why do we keep seeing stories like Mother Emmanuel, the Tree of Life Synagogue, Pulse Nightclub, El Paso Walmart, the Atlanta spas and Boulder where innocents and children and, and this time in Boulder, a very brave officer who ran headfirst into confrontation with this idol. Why do we keep hearing these stories and then saying to ourselves, this is the sacrifice that's required by the gods in order to keep us safe. How many more times will we say this is so sad thoughts and prayers, but this is just the way that it has to be. Because otherwise, if it weren't like this, then the bad guys or the government or the immigrant gangs or the, or the urban attack from the suburbs would happen. How many more times are we gonna say that? What if the next sacrifice was your child or grandchild? Why, why do we do this? We do this because, as we've considered in this series, we have evolved to be physically predisposed toward fear and worry and antagonism. We are predisposed to act and react irrationally out of fear rather than out of reason. We are predisposed to make fearful, negative assumptions about others, the proverbial bad guy or overreaching government or or MS-13, or a person of color from a different neighborhood. We're predisposed to assume the negative about them. We're predisposed to fear and to prepare ourselves to fight with them. And if in our wild imagination, filled with our negative and fearful assumptions, you know, these boogeymen have guns, then in our, in our reactiveness, we, we say then, well, if we're going to win the fight, we've got to have bigger guns and better guns and more guns. And then we're predisposed to tribalize along with those who think and fear the same way that we do. And we just reinforce all the worry, all the fear, all the negative assumptions. And it all just continues. And as we've been considering in the last couple episodes of this series and thinking about worry, not only do we all have these tendencies hardwired within us that prepare us to assume negatively and fight and to tribalize, 
but we also have brains that learn how to make it easier to worry. If just once as a child, we feared the boogeyman showing up with a gun because of an idea that our parents put in our heads or a news story that we saw or a movie that we watched that fed into our false assumptions. And we worried that having, uh, without having more guns than the boogeyman, we would be at risk of being dead. In that worry, even if it was only one time, our brain made it easier to make those same assumptions that lead to the same worries and the same fears and the same irrational behavior for the rest of our lives. And so we keep allowing innocent people and children to be sacrificed because we are letting our irrational and fearful defense mechanisms run wild while relegating any meaningful spirituality to the sidelines. We're checking our brains and our hearts and our spirits at the door and we're living purely by these physical impulses and fear. But what are we saying when this happens? Well, we're saying that assuaging our irrational fears is more important than the lives of other people. Let's say that again so that it can sink in even more deeply. If our fear of the bad guy or government overreach or immigrant gang member or person of color from a different neighborhood if that fear compels us to prop up a system of laws in which innocent lives continue to be lost, 10 in Boulder, including an officer, eight in Atlanta, we are saying that assuaging our irrational fears through the continuation of the system of gun laws and regulations as they are now, without considering any new changes or deterrence or regulations, is more important to us than others losing their lives. Assuaging an irrational and unfounded fear is more important than the lives of other people. Would you accept this if the next sacrifice was your child or your grandchild? If your child or grandchild had been in a nail salon in Atlanta, when this radicalized, hateful man bought a weapon of war and on the same day immediately walked into the nail salon and killed your daughter or your granddaughter? What if your child was one killed at the movies or while grocery shopping? Would you accept me saying, I'm sorry, but that's the price that we have to pay as a society so that I can feel safe? If you knew that, that I was 29 times more likely to be killed by an asteroid falling from the sky than by a refugee or an illegal immigrant. Or if you knew that your teenager, child or granddaughter or grandchild was five to 10 times more likely to die from firearm suicide than in every other country in the world, except for Greenland. Or if you knew that the current systems and laws make it 50 to 100 times more likely that you or your child or your grandchild would be killed by a gun in America than in 
Japan or the UK or other developed nations would would if you knew all that, would you accept me saying I'm sorry? But if we don't keep the thing things the way that they are, uh, we're just not safe from those refugees. Even though it's more likely I get hit by an asteroid, would you accept? that the assuaging of my personal fear of something that's less likely to cause me harm than an asteroid falling out of the sky onto my head was more important than the lives of innocents and children that continue to be lost. Well, I suspect that for some, the answer is yes, you would accept that if you were as fearful and therefore as irrational as I am, which is very possible based on how often News stories, movies, well-meaning parents, and ill-meaning politicians plant seeds of fear within us. And I suspect that the answer for others is no. You would not accept this if you were able to move beyond your irrational fear of the unlikely for long enough to see a more truthful picture of the situation. But to do that, to move beyond the fear, to move beyond the physical impulses that fear triggers within us to assume negatively, to prepare to fight, to join ranks tribally with those who think and fear like us, to move beyond the ability to worry with greater ease about the same things. We have to intentionally disrupt the physical with the spiritual. We have to pray and not just cliche and empty thoughts and prayers, but actually pray setting down our desires born of our own fear and greed and committing to live by the divine desires of peace and justice. We have to use practices of meditation and mindfulness to calm the irrational physical impulses long enough to become truly aware of what is real and the impact that it's having on real people. We have to be honest about what we're hearing and then repeating out into the world, honest about words and ideas that are not true and are designed with the intention of stirring up irrational fear. We have to fast from our consumption of voices and images and memes and videos that, that stir in us fits of fear and anger. We have to feast with, sit and listen to and make peace with and nurture a sense of belonging to those with whom we disagree. Those who know the utter hell and pain of losing someone to this kind of violence so that we can see that someone who thinks differently is not an enemy out to take away our safety and make us vulnerable to a boogeyman. Through these practices, we have to make room for a new spiritual voice within us, a voice that tells us a different story about what's real, a different story about who we are and how we relate to those we currently fear, a different story about how we work together to make for a society that is peaceful instead of violent. I find this voice in the tradition of Jesus, but his love of neighbor and golden rule centric spirituality is not singular exclusive of other religious traditions. It's the core of every major spiritual tradition in our world. Now for me, his is a voice that says, you've heard it said that you are to love your friends and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies. Love those who are the other to you. Love those you don't know or understand and those that you are physically predisposed to fear, approach them out of love rather than fear. His is a voice for me that says, put away your sword for those who live by the sword will die by the sword. His is a voice that says, you've heard it said an eye for an eye, but I say, forgive 
do not retaliate and turn the other cheek. You know, as Gandhi observed, an eye for an eye just leads to everyone being blind. It's a back and forth that never ends. It's a tit for tat that never ends. Violence and fear can never beget peace. They can only beget more violence and fear in this vicious cycle. We have to break the cycle, not by a spirit of fear, but by a spirit of love and forgiveness. Ultimately, it's inevitable that whatever this exact idol is, it and its followers will be humbled and, and it will crumble. Ultimately, it's inevitable that peace will come. The moral arc of the universe does bend toward justice, said Dr. King. And so we must not lose hope, but that doesn't mean that we just sit back and wait for it to magically happen. We have to participate in the movement of the restoration of peace. We must reject this idol. We must let the spirit of peace guide us instead of the spirit of fear. Someday we will take a number of intentional, rational, productive steps forward in our nation that, that add up to a real change. Someday we will be rebuilt as a nation out from the ruin of what we have brought upon ourselves. Godspeed that day. I hope and pray that it's sooner than my cynicism allows me to believe. But we don't know. What I do know is that that day won't come unless we nurture a widespread spiritual response to this idol that allows us to move beyond the physical forces that keep us bowing at its feet with fear. Empty thoughts and prayers aren't working. It's time to do some hard spiritual work. And I hope you'll resist the temptation to ignore it. In the next episode, I'm going to step anyone who's compelled to join me through a movement of these spiritual practices we've considered so far in this series that seeks to draw us beyond the physical fearfulness and impulsiveness when we talk about guns. A fearfulness and impulsiveness that leads us to someone other than the divine. An idol. As much as we think we trust in it, we'll never do anything good. And then moving beyond that to a more rational, spiritual, helpful understanding that makes for real peace, and safety, and comfort, and community. God help us. Be well. Stay safe. Wear a mask or two. Get a vaccine if you can, if you're eligible. And peace be to all. Take care.